0: On today's show.
1: Does it does it like blow their minds a little bit when you tell them like hey like like I mean, how do they, what what's the, what's the weirdest reaction you've gotten from someone?
0: Oh my god, you have no idea. <laughs> I mean, like, first of all, I make I make them do reflection papers every week on the readings and the assignments and the exercises that we do, and it's so emotional. At the beginning of every class, I read to them the adjectives that people have written into their papers and it's you know terrified anxious excited Um, you know my mind is blown i can't believe it like it's amazing how powerful some of this work is and i have to say that i've been teaching the class for five years And my students have done amazing things. I have one student who dropped out of the MBA program. Really, I've had many who have dropped out of campus recruiting. I've had students who have, after graduation, taken off and uh, gone traveling for months. They have started their own businesses. They have moved locations. Um, They've asked me to meet with their spouses to kind of rethink how they've structured their life. It's really amazing some of the things that my students have done. Five. Four.
1: How's it going, everyone? This is Eric. On today's episode, we're going to have a really fascinating conversation with Diane Mulcahy. And what is so interesting about the conversation we had is she sort of answers the question, what could we do if we weren't afraid? There's this fear that we oftentimes have of becoming a creator. And she has an award-winning class at Babson that is really about teaching people how to build a portfolio of work. She talks a lot about sort of the the death of the resume and the growth of the portfolio. And we we talk about using platforms to become a creator, whether you're a developer, you're a designer, you're a consultant, you're a business person, whatever it is. Uh, her book is on the gig economy. And, but, but I, I think- the, the really interesting part about the way she talks about this is it's not limited to the gig economy the way we think about it, driving for Uber or Lyft, um, but she thinks of the gig economy much more of this sort of portfolioization of work where you can have a number of clients, have a much you know better life in a lot of ways, be have more flexibility, and ultimately uh, make much more money. Um, I, I enjoyed talking to her. We talk a little bit about the some of the premises that Tim Ferriss describes of fear-setting. How do you Plan your life in a way that can can make sure that you're not kind of building fears up in your head to prevent you from doing what you're doing. And she says that for people who want to become creators, the biggest realization she had is that she needed to build out actually a whole set of classes on dealing with the fears. And she said, the biggest fear we have is not for the people that are strangers, but it's the people that are closest to us. What are they going to say when, oh, look at you, you've gone off and decided not to take that traditional job. And instead Instead, um, create your own path um, as, a, as a freelancer, as a consultant, as, as what may have you. Um, I think her conversations and insights are really thoughtful as we look at the way the world is changing. And you know, particularly, we talk a lot about the side hustle, how you can get started now doing something that will give you that credibility and expertise to be able to create whenever you're ready. Diane Mulcahy, the author of The Gig Economy, and our conversation really focuses on how you as a creator can start to think now about creating those small evidence, that side hustle, those of work to do what you love. Welcome, Diane McKeighley. Very excited to have you today. And it was funny as we were talking. I think we've we sort of have some interesting overlaps from our, our background. So I think both of us have have uh, have been connected to the Mothership of Kaufman Foundation, which I think has perhaps helped us think about entrepreneurship and this innovation economy in a really uh, fascinating way. So I'm glad to have you on the show today.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Of course. So y- you have sort of. Become the expert on the future of sort of how we think about work, and and I think there's this very traditional notion of uh, you have a job, and that's sort of what you do, and and what your uh, sort of premise has become is that that's changing. Can you can you sort of? Give us the the, the 30,000 foot level on sort of what this broad change is that you sort of profile and have now really sort of integrated into your teaching and your speaking and your writing.
0: Yes, absolutely. So th- the change that I'm talking about is really the future of work at the highest level and within that, the development and growth of the gay economy. And the premise that I talk about in my book on the gay economy is that traditional jobs, as we know them, this idea that you're a full-time employee in a full-time job and you go to an office every day, that traditional construct is never going to entirely disappear, but it is certainly on the decline. The rapid decline and what's replacing it is the idea of work. And what that looks like is people who are consultants, who are con- independent contractors, who are freelancers, on demand workers, who work part time, who work for themselves and are actually focused on getting projects and assignments and tasks completed. So. It's a much less rigid, structured way of working, and it's much more focused on results and deliverables rather than life in a nine-to-five cube.
1: And, and so, g- give me an example. You, you know, you, you you are at Babson, you're working with students. What what are the kind of things that, you know, in some ways you have to shift their mindset to think about life as a portfolio of work? How, how do you, you know, in some ways there's this, you know, you do the on-campus interviewing. How does someone say, I want to build a career track which, around this theory of a portfolio of work?
0: Yeah, when the students come to my class, they don't necessarily come with that mindset. <laughs> right. Many of them sign up and they really are, I mean, look, they're in an MBA program, so yeah. many of the... Them have a traditional mindset, they've been working full time, you know, these are students in their mid to late 20s, usually sometimes in their early 30s. And many of them think that they're going to graduate and get a traditional job, and they're going through campus recruiting, etc. So, as I say to them at the beginning of the course, you know, my main goal here is to shift your mindset and to open it into thinking about Alternatives that go beyond the traditional full time job and really the traditional life. And what I do is take them through a series of topics. I have them do reflections and exercises that help them try to get at what success looks like to them. What are the things they're interested in? What are the skills that they bring to the table? And what are some of the ways that they can start to develop a portfolio of work that opens up opportunities for them beyond the full-time job. Mm-hmm. So that that's really the whole goal and structure of the class is to bring them from a traditional mindset in which they're planning to go get a traditional job to one where they are much more deliberate and intentional and strategic about how they think about their work and their career. And give them the skills and the tools to be able to put together a portfolio of work. Does it? Does it like
1: blow their minds a little bit when you tell them, like, hey, like, like, I mean, how do they, what's the, what's the weirdest reaction you've gotten from someone?
0: Oh my god, you have no idea. I mean, like, <laughs> first of all, I make I make them do reflection papers every week on the readings and the assignments and the exercises that we do, and it's so emotional. At the beginning of every class, I read to them the adjectives that people have written into their papers, and it's, you know, terrified, anxious, excited. Um, You know, my mind is blown. I can't believe it. Like, it's amazing how powerful some of this work is. And I have to say that I've been teaching the class for five years and my students have done amazing things i have one student who dropped out of the mba program really had many who have dropped out of campus recruiting i've had students who have after graduation taken off and uh, gone traveling for months they have started their own businesses. They have moved locations. Um, they've asked me to meet with their spouses to kind of rethink how they've structured their life. It's really amazing. Yeah. Some of the things that my students have done. And how, you know, as, as, you, as you think about that,
1: Right. You're and I love it because I'm sort of like you, I'm trying to push people to just own their trajectory. What is the biggest sort of mental block they put in the way? Is it certainty? Is it how the resume is gonna look? Like what's the thing that's that's that holds, you know, the traditional MBA student from um, from sort of just diving into that future that, that is, is is pretty clear that it's going to be moving in that direction for a lot of people.
0: It's fear. Yeah. It's fear. Um, You know, I realized that, as you know, because you teach, courses change year to year. Mm -hmm. And what I realized was that is what was holding people back. And Mm -hmm. so I designed and incorporated a whole class on fear and risk, Mm -hmm. where I take the students through a variety of exercises to help them identify and name and acknowledge the fears that they have and then try to wrestle those fears to try to make them concrete to try to translate them into into specific risks and then to help them identify ways that they can mitigate those risks or at least acknowledge that the risks that they're worried about are a little bit crazy and that they can just park those to the side and move on anyways so there there in order for the students to move forward There had to be a way to get them over the fear. And I think also being in a classroom with other students really Mm. helped that. So some of the exercises or group exercises, and the exercises that I have in my book, I, I, I encourage readers if they do them in some of the cases to talk about them or do the exercises with other people because that can really help having somebody else Who can help you walk through some of these fears and risks and help you see them from the outside and determine whether they're real or whether they're really something that you're, that's in your head.
1: That's, that's that's fascinating. It's It reminds me a lot of the Tim Ferriss, uh, the 2017 TED Talk that he did, where he sort of laid out this premise um, that he took from stoicism around fear setting as opposed to goal setting, where you sort of define the worst case scenarios and then sort of really dive into those and start there. And what, what he said is that, you know, sort of the, the genericism of fear holds many people back. Whereas if you get specific about it, you often realize like, well, no, that's not a real thing. Like, here's how I would solve that. And it's and fascinating like, to see him talk through it. It sounds like exactly the same piece as if you actually own the concept of fear and get specific about it, most of those times they're sort of either solvable or they're not a real risk um, anyways.
0: That is exactly true. And it's really very powerful for the students to realize that. And it, it, even just the act of trying to name and identify their fear and then translate it into risks just by doing that, in many cases, they recognize that their fear is a story. Mm -hmm. It's something that is irrational, that is really never going or very, very unlikely to happen to them. And just doing that allows them to move on from it. And it opens up a path to pursue the thing that fear was holding them back from. So it really is very powerful.
1: That's cool. How do you? How, one of the things that I always I, I think about a lot, and I, I'm sort of I think about something that Adam Grant has said, where where he says today he reads the resume from the bottom up, right? I'm looking for these things that people do on the side and and that sort of stuff. How do you think about the future of the resume and this theory of the world that's more of a portfolio of work? Like, what does that look like uh, in the case of you know a traditional resume, which is you know, in some ways, what's funny is when people look at a traditional resume and they see gaps in employment or they see that things don't line up, that's like a red flag. But that's sort of the nature of of this sort of portfolio of work theory. How, how does that change in in the future?
0: Actually, I think it's already changed. I, hmm. I don't think that's a future thing. I mean, I I suppose the traditional resume does still exist, but I think people are much more aware that people have multiple things going on. I think LinkedIn has been really great about helping to change that because you can have... Uh, kind of a slash list of the things that you do. So, you know, I'm an author, speaker, investor, adjunct lecturer, right? I have a number of different things going on and I can list that as my sort of headline. And that's not uncommon anymore. No, it's, it's, it's still common for people to list their title if they work a traditional job. Mm-hmm. But I think it's equally as common and you can find many examples where people list themselves or present themselves by kind of a slash list of what they do.
1: It's interesting. So, so LinkedIn, I think, is a is a is a great example for a lot of business folks. What you know, what about the platforms? Like, you know, do you see this happening with things like GitHub and Dribbble for sort of more technical roles? Do you see that sort of those sorts of tools being the place that someone goes now to sort of see a portfolio of, of your of your work?
0: Yeah, I'm not a technical person. I'm not familiar with those sites. I do work in the entrepreneurial community, though, and what I can tell you is. Among entrepreneurs and people who work in the startup ecosystem, it's really common to have to present yourself as a person who is doing multiple things. You might be working on a startup here, advising another startup there, sitting on a board of directors over here, and then doing your some of your own personal projects over here, and then sitting on some nonprofit boards in this at this time. You know, mm-hmm. so there's a variety. There, there's, I think, a very um, accepted culture of somebody who's doing a lot of different things, has a lot of different balls in the air.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the things I wanted, would love to get your take on is, you know, with this kind of concept that, that we chatted about earlier about the creator is there's this sense of you're sort of creating all these elements that sort of start to give you credibility, sort of evidence of your expertise uh, what do you see even in your own experience as adding the kind of comma author to your <laughs> to your experience how do how does it change the way that people see see your credibility and your expertise when you sort of add something tangible and physical like a book or a podcast or a, a class that you're teaching to uh, to someone's um, sort of resume?
0: I think it's a very powerful addition. I think it makes a big difference in credibility and I think, you know, having uh, having multiple platforms mm-hmm. really gives you a lot of optionality in terms of the types of opportunities that you pursue. So I noticed when I started teaching at Babson, having an academic platform really opened up a number of opportunities. People perceived me as smart, as credible, as kind of neutral because mm-hmm. you were at a university, which mm-hmm. doesn't really have a skin in any particular game. Being an author, I think, is a completely different area of expertise because you're you're sort of given credibility within a niche or a particular area, and you know it's it's expected that you have kind of a you know you spent a fair amount of time reflecting and thinking and maybe interviewing and getting out uh, into the world in that space. So people really give you a lot of credibility on that side. In my experience, what I found is writing has been the most powerful tool for lead generation, for opportunity Mm -hmm. generation, for meeting other people, for creating new opportunities and for, um, for increasing credibility. Um, Writing is, is a very powerful tool for getting your ideas out into the world, for reaching a very, very broad audience Mm -hmm. Uh, more. So even, and I do writing and speaking and interviews and press writing has been the number one, I I, I would say for me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think there's something to this too about, I read an article recently saying the future is in the hands of the storyteller. And I think even, you know, reading, reading your book is just, it's, you know, story after story after story. And I think the ability to tell stories enables us to understand. And we as a human species have been, you know, the lore that we told around the campfire has continued to this day. And I think it's just being packaged, packaged differently, um, which is, which is a fascinating thing to, to observe.
0: It is. And I think the idea of the podcast and the interviews, it's the same thing. You get to hear people in their own words, talk about their own experiences, tell their own stories. It's it's, um you know, it opens up kind of a, an intimacy that isn't available through a lot of other mediums. Mm
1: -hmm. So I want to take a little sort of a specific example, because I think one of the things that I often hear, and you probably see this a lot too, is someone's in the traditional world. They're this aspirational, I do want to work for myself. I think there's something, I think I I read a stat that 68% of people who are employed right now would like to work for themselves one day. And yet, you know, the vast majority of them are doing nothing to do it. What, what, like, walk us through how you would sort of coach someone, be it the student or whatever it is, to start to make those moves. Moves from this traditional employment world to the, the portfolio world that that you've laid out. What's the first steps that someone someone does?
0: Yeah, I get this question a lot, and, and <laughs> you know, particularly from when I speak at, at corporations, uh, this is this is <laughs> this is foremost in a number of people's minds. How do I quit my job? Exactly, that's really the question that you're asking, um, or how do I transition to working for myself? I think there are three critical steps. I think there are a lot of things that you can do, but I think there are three critical steps. The first one is, and this is the first chapter of my book, is... You really have to do some reflective work and understand what does success look like for you, because you have to you have to have a roadmap for where you're going. What what is it that you're trying to do? What is it that is going to look different about your life working for yourself than it does in your current job? So, thinking really carefully about and intentionally about what success looks like for you what's important what are your values what are what are your priorities to me that's the foundation really of any change that you're going to make in your life but certainly a big change like restructuring your professional life secondly and more tactically uh, i tell you know i tell students and uh, people who are working in traditional jobs alike to think about developing an exit strategy and mm-hmm. You know, this is advice I would give to anybody at any time. I think even right. if you're in, a, even if you're a person who's about to take a job, right? I would right. argue, you know, enter with the exit in mind. Whether you're buying a house or taking a job or whatever it is you're doing, that's really if good If you're advice. in a full-time job, develop an exit strategy, and I have some detailed exercises in my book that walk you through that. But I'll just tell you at a high level what that looks like is. To imagine that you knew in your current position that you were going to be laid off six months from now, what are the things that you would do to prepare for that? Mm-hmm. What are the things professionally, personally, and financially? And those might look like, um, you know, reaching out to colleagues, attending conferences, getting certifications. Um, maxing out your employer-provided benefits like training or education or healthcare or retirement savings, and then financially and personally, you know, thinking about what are some projects I'd like to do? Is there anything I would do with time between jobs? What about my living situation? Am I willing to change that? Are there expenses I'm willing to cut? Things like that. So make a list of things that you would do if you knew that you were going to be laid off in six months and start doing them. And that way, if you always have that list, if you're always working on that list, if anything happens to you in your current situation or you do decide to leave, you're ready, you're prepared. Thirdly, start by getting a side gig. I mean, there's no (laughs) reason that anybody in a traditional job has to immediately quit their job and dive both feet first into the the gig economy. If you're in a full-time job, take advantage of that and give yourself some runway to prepare uh, through the ways I talked about with the exit strategy and also to start uh, with a side gig. Because Mm -hmm. even if you're thinking about launching your own business, whether it's consulting or providing a specific service or a product or starting a business – doing so while you're in a full-time job is much lower cost and much lower risk than waiting until you've quit that job and it's Mm -hmm. the only thing that you're doing. Mm -hmm. So starting something on the side gives you really great information about whether your plan is realistic, about what the demand is, about what people are willing to pay, how long it takes you to get customers, all of those things. So figure out what success looks like to you, Get an exit strategy going for the situation that you're in right now, and get a side gig.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it's it's it is funny that there is still this premise of you sort of you know you're gonna just leap and and sort of figure it out. Whereas it, it's it we don't do that with most any other things. If if we knew that something was gonna be happening in six months, we would totally approach things differently. But it's. Yeah, it still surprises me that, that people don't take that advice <laughs> as much as you said.
0: Well, I'm not sure that advice is widely out there. Uh, I, think yeah. the, I When I talk about exit strategies, people people want to delve into that. They don't immediately mm-hmm. understand what that means. So I, I think it's a different approach for yeah. thinking about how to manage your professional uh, life.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's I, we. I guess I, you know, I live in this world, and and I, you know, it, and you do too, where it's just it seems so obvious, right? Well, of course it's happening, but I think it's uh, it's still still is 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 pretty radical to some to some people, I guess.
0: It is. It definitely is. <laughs> so what
1: what do you think about the um? There is this sort of premise when the word gig economy comes up that people immediately jump to, oh, you drive for Uber, or oh, you sort of work, you know, you deliver stuff for Postmates. How do you see sort of this the The really playing in a big part of the economy, which is the knowledge economy. What's sort of the what kind of examples are you seeing of this shift happening, particularly in the knowledge economy, that that may be kind of under the radar to the mass market, but it's really it's a big, big shift?
0: I think that's exactly right. I think one of the common myths when people hear the term gig economy, they equate it to Uber drivers because Uber drivers get so much press. Honestly. So usually when I start talking to people, I start by defining what I mean, which is if you're not a full-time employee in a full-time job, you're in the gig economy. So that mm-hmm. includes consultants, independent contractors, advisors, freelancers, part-time workers, etc. The gig economy in fact is so broad. It it crosses all industries, all sectors, all education levels, income levels. It's really quite amazing. How prevalent it is in industries where people might not even think about that or be aware of it. Even when it, even when you think about platform companies, it's true that Uber is a platform, Instacart is a platform, TaskRabbit is a platform, but so is Catalent, which helps MBA graduates and former McKinsey and Bain consultants find work. So is mm-hmm. BTG, which helps former executives find work. So is Axiom, which helps lawyers find gigs and projects and assignments. So, When you look at it, there are really platforms that have popped up for all kinds of professions and niches, but because it's not your industry, you might not be aware of it. And Mm -hmm. I think that's why it's not as widely known how much the gig economy has infiltrated many, many industries. People just aren't aware of it because it's not their space, Mm -hmm. but it's out there and it's happening in almost every industry. Mm
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm yeah it's fascinating to to think that you know uh, someone was telling me an mba student of mine was telling me that uh, he was already doing work on hourly nerd which is sort of a kind of a consultant type thing as well a platform and you know he was saying he's like listen I- i'm making more money than i would make at an internship and it's you know, it's fascinating to think how how that, that's happening. And I think the other thing that I would just maybe love your take on a little bit is most of these platforms that you talk about, we, we are very familiar with Uber and we're familiar with the ratings and review systems. And, you know, if I ever see a, an Uber driver that has a 4.5 rating, I get a little nervous. That same thing is starting to happen as a tool, sort of a credibility tool through these platforms and sort of, the more credibility you build um, through good work, the portfolio you build, the better. H- how do people, how do you recommend people start thinking about that as a, as an element of this being ready to leap of, of how much credibility you build on these platforms in order to get work sent to you?
0: Actually, I would take that a step further because I think it's not just the platforms mm-hmm. and the ratings. I think leave it, let's even leave the pla- because that we can acknowledge that that's important. So sure. if you're on a platform, having good ratings makes a difference. Mm-hmm. But even if you're not on a platform, what you find is a lot of independent workers, particularly in the knowledge economy, they have a portfolio that showcases their prior work. So even though I'm a writer, I have a book, I have articles, people go read those before they come talk to me. They Google you. They Google me. Or if you're a speaker, they ask for video clips or a speaker's reel. They want to see your prior work. And I know on some of the, um, like software platforms like TopTal and others, they ask to see some prior examples or even ask you to give examples Mm -hmm. through their site, uh, through assignments that they give you of the work that you can do. So I think increasingly, you know, going back to our earlier discussion about the resume, it's really becoming less about the resume and more about demonstrating through really concrete examples of prior work or test assignments that you have the expertise and abilities that you say you do and really giving a sample of that that's yeah. I think where the future is going
1: how do you think about that from a there, there's this fear of listen I've not done these things I you know they don't teach this stuff in school I, I find it to be fascinating that the I always now and anytime I'm gonna do an interview I always ask them for a writing sample you know for anyone and the number of people that freak out about that question to me shocks me <laughs> and so how do you how do you think about it's 2018 you know people are Uh, you know, they're listening to this, they're thinking about, okay, I got to do something for my portfolio. How do you recommend someone start a portfolio um, approach to building that, that sort of that demonstration of your, your competency?
0: Well, I think you can, you know, if, if, if some of the listeners are students, I think you can take some of the work that you've done either in college or in graduate school and incorporate that into your portfolio. I Mm -hmm. mean, for most students, They're taking classes that are somewhat related to the work that they want to do. And a lot of universities and graduate programs have practical classes like capstones or um, you have internships or examples where you're working in more of a real world setting, even though it's not for pay, it's for credit, but it allows you to come out with a testimonial with a work example that you can use as you're looking for work after graduation. And again, get a side gig. There's really (laughs) nothing stopping even somebody who's in school from working on a platform or for getting a client on their own or for continuing to work on a project basis for a former employer and continuing to build their portfolio to reflect the skills and experience and knowledge that they're acquiring along the way while they're in school. So I think there are a lot of ways to do that besides having a full time job.
1: Mm-hmm. What do you What do you think there 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 is this one of the things I've seen is a trepidation from particularly you know people on the younger side about this is is this sort of statement oh. No one would pay me for my work and I don't have any, you know, way to create those sorts of things. What do you think about people doing work for free or sort of, you know, doing work just to build that portfolio? Is that sort of becoming more common sort of as an activity in this kind of portfolio world that we're living in?
0: It's certainly very common in the student populations. Okay. I think internships have become a really fundamental part of most colleges. Um, most college career service departments, at least that I'm familiar with, have taken on the responsibility of working with their students to help them set up internships either during the semester or over the summer to help them maximize their opportunities for getting relevant experience. Right. So I think for students or graduate students or people who are moving into fields that are new for them, working for free is not a terrible way to get your foot in the door to start. You have to start somewhere. Right. I think the challenge among independent workers in the gig economy is making sure that you pay really careful attention to when it's time to stop doing (laughs) it. That's right. Yeah. Show me the money. Yeah. I think it's important to have an understanding that, okay, I'm going to do you know, I'm going to write several articles for free or I'm going to create content or I'm going to do some speaking engagements. You have to start somewhere. Mm -hmm. Um, But really trying to monitor and make sure that you don't get up, get caught up in doing that for too long. And The best way to transition is to understand the market rates for the things that you're doing and start out at the low end. And I've, Mm -hmm. a number of my students have done that. I've seen them do speeches, you know, for, for a small amount of money or, you know, start working with, um, companies or with startups for little money or for equity or getting clients in which they're charging you know at the bottom of the market rates because it makes them more attractive it's lower yeah. risk for somebody to take on somebody with less experience if they're paying them less so right. that's a great way to get started and then you have to just be careful to make sure that you're keeping you know an eye on what the market environment is what people with your similar levels of experience or charging and make sure that you're increasing your rates um, along the way.
1: Mm-hmm. It's a, it is, it is a definitely a, you know, I think that to your, your earlier point, there's this uh, sort of, you know, uh, people will, will sort of say, oh, the gig economy, it's, you know, it's not for me. I, I don't, you know, I don't need that sort of life. And I, I just think that like the, the, it just underlies how big the fundamental shift is that's going, going on. And, And, uh, and I think you're absolutely right. There, there is, you're being defined by what you create, not by where you created it. And so that, that I think is sort of this fundamental thing shift that I'm seeing too, is that like people, no matter what, even if they're at a company, they're still in some ways have to be developing a portfolio to advance even in the company. And, and I think as people realize that they're all, we're all independent contractors, whether we have an employer or not, it will start to change the way people, people attack this.
0: I think the best line I heard that summarized the way to think about going out into the work world is I work for myself. I'm employed mm-hmm. by X.
1: Ah, interesting.
0: But you always work for yourself. Even if Mm -hmm. you have a full-time job for some period of time, or you have an anchor client, or you have Mm -hmm. a portfolio with a variety of clients, you're employed by them or by that company or by those companies, but you work for yourself always. And Mm -hmm. that's the mentality, the mindset that you need going into the fe- this world of work and the future world of work, I would argue.
1: With my students, particularly the ones that are creating books or podcasts, I actually, uh, I, I encourage them and about 90, 90% of them do, I encourage them to set up an entity. Whether it has to, it doesn't have to be a legal entity, but just to create another entity because that in some ways shifts that mindset. They now think of themselves as a business around me, you know, whatever that may be. And I think you're, you're 100% right. As, as long, as soon as someone starts to say, I am in control, versus I am sort of out of control, someone else controls, it. I think that everything shifts. And so I think this, these exercises and activities, and I think your book is chocked full of those sorts of things to just get people to see themselves differently and take these small little steps. Suddenly you're like, oh gosh, like why would I ever see my, the world uh, in the old way?
0: Right. And I think one of the mindset obstacles that I find in my students is That they still perceive that this kind of default path of a traditional job and the traditional American dream represents safety and stability and security. And it's really helpful to walk them through some exercises to help them understand that actually that perception is not reality. There is no job security. Even if you have a full time job, that doesn't. Indicate anything about your level of security or stability or safety. Um, the best example that I have is I was teaching a class one spring, and the class, you know, had a break for spring break. Spring break is one week. Mm-hmm. And when we reconvened after spring break, one of my students raised his hand and said, You won't believe what happened over spring break. Uh, the company that I'm working at was acquired. And I had no idea that this was in the works. It's a complete surprise to me. And I don't know if I have a job. And I think (laughs) that was a perfect illustration of the way the economy is today. Mm -hmm. Even if you think that you're safe and secure, you could come back from vacation and find out your company has merged. It's been acquired. It has undergone cost cutting that you didn't see coming. There's a layoff going on. so. At any time, you have to be prepared to lose your job and then have something in mind for what's next.
1: Yeah, I was I was one of the when I in my prior life I was a I was a lawyer and I worked for Heller Ehrman, which Heller Ehrman was the you know 150 year old law firm. They did the work for the the Golden Gate Bridge, <laughs> and in one week we went from being a solvent firm to the partners deciding to shut it down and being on on our on our tails. And so you know I thought, oh gosh, I'm in a top 50 law firm. This is great. And suddenly you know you're scrambling to figure out what's next. So I, I think you're 100 percent right, and I think it's a good exercise i think for people to think about think about the company you're at and look at the last 20 years and look at the competitors around them to see what's happened to sort of give yourself that <laughs> that the reality check on what is certain and what is not
0: Absolutely true. <laughs> well,
1: it's terrific. Well, Diane, thank you so much for the time. Um, for everyone, uh, just to say it again, the book is The Gig Economy, The Complete Guide to Getting Better Work, Taking More Time Off, and Financing the Life You Want. Uh, this has been fascinating. And uh, and I think I'm glad that you're talking about this in a way that is sort of really demystifies it from a, hey, that's just an Uber driver, but really to understand that MBAs and business school students and even people, you know, look, thinking about the next stage of their career can really attack this. So thanks so much for the time today.
0: Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me and for the great questions. This was super fun.
1: I appreciate it.